Hello and welcome to today's SSCM BCCR rounds. I'm your host Richard Iorio and joining me today will be Senior Emergency Medicine Resident mm -hmm. Jim Riley. Hi. Today I will be speaking with Laura Johnson, MD. Dr. Johnson is an attending surgeon at the Burns Center at MedStar Washington Hospital Center and Assistant Professor, professor of Surgery at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Her medical degree is from Keck School of Medicine in the University of Southern California and internship and residency were at Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Johnson completed her fellowship in trauma and surgical critical care at Emory University, uh, Emory School of Medicine. When she is not in the hospital, Dr. Johnson is an avid saber fencer competing around the country and is part of the National Tournament Committee for the United States Fencing Association. Hello and, doc and welcome Dr. Johnson. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think we should give her an opportunity to make the cutting on people in and out of the hospital joke again. That was <laughs> my favorite part. It really was. <laughs> I was waiting for it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> A saber fencer, really, Dr. Johnson? How interesting. Yes. I have to say, it at least provides me the opportunity to be cutting on someone, whether I'm in or out of the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. So as part of our rounds, uh, basically how I like to open up our podcast is we're rounding in our ICU. Um, sometimes we'll round on a septic patient, an AKI patient. Today we're coming across bed two, a 35-year-old male who presented via EMS with severe burns to the abdomen, thorax, and face after his apartment caught on fire uh, one hour before presentation. His vitals presented into the ED as uh, his heart rate was 120, his oxygen saturation was 90, his blood pressure was 100 over 40, uh, afebrile. On physical exam, he was wheezing, had strider and soot in his mouth, and he had a GCS of 8. Uh, our primary, uh, we were conducting a primary survey, and I was interested in finding out if Dr. Johnson, is there anything in particular that you find that these patients are more in respiratory distress than usual? Any signs or symptoms? So I think that you pretty much touched on them in the physical exam. And a patient who's got a lower than normal GCS, um, who's got evidence of strider and uh, on physical exam, visible evidence of an inhalation component, soot in the mouth, um, uh, soot around the nose, then that's a patient who I'm at significantly concerned about needing an airway. And that's exactly correct. Our patient was subsequently intubated and um, our resident wanted to know if there was any particular endotracheal tube size that you, the surgical ICU or the burn safe uh, center would like put placed before the intubation. So as with so many things, size does matter. Ah. Uh, I think that the largest tube you can safely get into a patient, um, the better. Certainly in the acute phase, it's helpful in a patient who we suspect of having inhalation injury to have an endotracheal tube that we can put a bronchoscope through. Um, you know, most bronchoscopes will pretty easily go through a seven and a half tube um, without having to go hunt down the pediatric scope. So something like a seven and a half or an eight's uh, great. And then, you know, down the line, uh, as these patients are going to be hypermetabolic, uh, it's useful to have large tubes so that their ventilation isn't a problem and they can easily deal with the hypermetabolic component of their injury. Absolutely, totally agree. Is there any respiratory sequelae of burn injuries that you think of in particular with these patients when you see them and you're rounding on them the morning after or two days after, three days after? 
Well, certainly when they first come in, if there's an inhalation injury suggested, we always check these patients' carboxyhemoglobin levels to make sure that they're not elevated. Uh, you know, in this patient who you're telling me has a low GCS, that's certainly something I would be worried about. And it's someone, the, all of these patients were going to put on 100% uh, FiO2 to begin with, but certainly in the setting of a carboxy level that's elevated, I would keep them on that um, oxygen for a longer period of time to help the washout. And then I would have, have in my head, you know, is this somebody I need to be worried about other kinds of toxic inhalation components like cyanide? Um, if those are not the case, then I'm going to, you know, proceed through the burn resuscitation, keeping in mind that these patients are at risk for ARDS um, in the early phase. And sure enough, our, our patient got two large bore IV antecubital. He's been intubated, and so far his vitals are somewhat stable. Is there any other concerns during the resuscitation process that you wouldn't like to have been missed by the primary team taking care of this patient? So I think it's important for everybody to remember that especially in these large burns, we have to be really attentive to the other signs of injury. You know, they could be burn patients, they could be simply in the wrong place at the wrong time and sustain a large burn from a cooking accident, but they could just as easily have been on the fourth floor of their apartment um, when somebody else's uh, apartment caught on fire and they could have jumped out of the building on, in, in an effort to escape. So all of these patients should be evaluated as trauma patients first so that we don't miss hemorrhagic shock as a compounding factor to their overall mortality. I totally agree, and that's exactly what we were doing with our patient. Uh, with the patients got their portable chest, they got their portable pelvis, they got their trauma series done in the ED, they had a fast, and everything turned out to be negative. Um, they also probably be put in for a CT as well before he hits the surgical ICU. And then one of the residents turned to me and asked me, what do you want to do about pain control and antibiotics? And I was like, hmm, you know what? I think I'll just talk to our famous burn surgeon who's here and ask her. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, what would you guys normally do for pain in a trauma patient? Usually, uh, morphine. Yeah, morphine, fentanyl, uh, narcotics. Do you are you going to titrate to any particular markers, or just they get two of morphine and that's it? Well, no, yeah, exactly. If the patient's on the monitor, you basically he's he or she can't tell you if she's in pain or he's in pain at all. So I'll probably titrate to respiratory rate. At, well, these are bad on the ventilator, so it doesn't matter. But usually, heart rate to see if there's a pain. Right, and I think that, you know, that's pretty much the key in burn patients. This is a an exceptionally painful accident injury to have happened, and so it's important not to underestimate the amount of pain medication they're going to need. It's eye-opening, I think, to some of my trainees how much pain medicine patients can ask for and still ask for more while protecting their airway. Um, so, you know, I don't think if they're still showing physiologic signs that they're in pain and clinical exam signs that they're in pain that you can give them too little pain medicine. Um, in terms of antibiotics, I am a firm believer in really sort of good antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, these patients are going to get uh, 
covered at least in the immediate term with topical antimicrobials in form of in the form of some kind of silver containing topical and so they really don't need systemic antimicrobials and in patients with large burns who are going to be in the hospital for an extended period of time uh, it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that we don't self-select uh, for the bugs that are going to cause us to go on isolation lockdown so uh Dutiful antibiotic stewardship with burn patients, huh? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in terms of pain control, because a lot of these, you know, a lot of these guys will come in uh, probably hypotensive and kind of, you know, shocky looking. Uh, if you're trying to avoid a central line, you might want to maybe consider other pain modalities. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on using ketamine or uh, some other cardiovascular sparing agent instead of narcotics. Um, I don't think you can underestimate the need for narcotic pain medicine in, in this patient population. I mean, certainly uh, there's an increasing literature on the use of ketamine, certainly in the pediatric burn population, and it's a very helpful adjunct, but uh, they do need narcotic pain medicine as well. They need some opioids, uh, usually just hands down? Yes. Okay. And actually, you made me think of another question. I don't know, usually what's the general practice in your facility when it comes to uh, sedation when there is it like propofol fentanyl versed something else because i know the propofol you get the hypotension but you're really going to get a side effect no matter what you do it's basically what side effect are you willing to tolerate the most right and so <laughs> we our tendency is to use propofol okay. um though we will use uh benzodiazepines in some patients depending on how they react to the propofol um it's not, you know, as long as our patients are demonstrating good end organ perfusion, which for us is really going to be urine output, and I'm sorry to foreshadow of the next part of this talk, but, you know, as long as they're, they're making adequate urine or otherwise seem well perfused, I'm not as worried about a particular systolic blood pressure number. Um, so, you know, I really just want them to be comfortable, and to that end, we use a fair amount of propofol and narcotics. Okay. And we're in our initial resuscitation of the patient. Uh, most of us probably use the Parkland formula, which Jim was going to tell us about. The Parkland formula is four cc's per kilogram body mass times the percentage of body surface area that was burned times 100. And that's what they get over 24 hours, half in the first date, the other half in the subsequent 16. So why do you multiply the TBSA by 100? Well, just because I think of percentages in terms of decimals and not zero to So, yeah, that's it. Great. I think that's a great point because it's, it's whole number percentages when you're doing the Parkland formula. Um, and so we anything? Just, yeah, we just got Jim a point on his boards. So <laughs> after that, <laughs> I was wondering, is there any other formulas we should be conscious of or maybe expand our knowledge base past what the standard is? Uh, well, so a couple things about the Parkland formula initially. Remember, it's a formula that mm. is supposed to be calculated for the time the patient's actually injured. So oftentimes, our patients don't come to us right away. It depends on you know, where you are, uh, where your ER is relative to the place the patient's coming from. So it's important to remember that whatever formula you use, you're calculating fluid requirements from the time of injury. Um, and Parkland 
certainly has a long history in burn resuscitation. It's been sort of the go-to formula since the mid-60s. But there has been an increasing uh, move by the American Burn Association to think about the dangers of over-resuscitation, the fluid creep that can happen with Parkland is not unsubstantial. And so uh, the current ABLS, American uh, Burn, excuse me, Advanced Burn Life Support training uh, suggests the consensus formula, which is two cc's per kilo per decimal point TBSA times 100. (laughs) Thank you. Perfect. I couldn't set it better myself. And... Is the, if you could pick one vital sign, one lab, one modality of monitoring these patients, what would it be? Well, I think I've already probably given you a clue to that. Exactly. What do you think? I'm thinking urinary output. I think the Foley catheter is your best friend in these patients. There you go. Uh, can't stress that enough. Urinary output. Just if you can go by urinary output, you can decide how well fluid resuscitated these patients are. Um, so our patient is actually doing pretty well and all of a sudden we're rounding on him I'm getting a phone call from my fellow he's telling me listen this guy's peak airway pressure is going up his plateau pressure is going up he's not saturating well his urinary output's going down I did some blood work his lactic acid is going up he's like I don't know what to do and I was like you know what I don't either why don't you call the, the trauma burn doctor that we have she's so very good and see if she can uh, shed some light on the situation. So I think your trauma burn doctor will probably be at the bedside with that resident. Probably. Exactly. So, um, I think, so, you know, it's probably important to talk about where we are time frame wise in the resuscitation because, you know, these things happen at different time points relative to the problem um, the potential problem. So, I mean, certainly in the early phase of a patient's resuscitation, if they have third degree burns to their chest wall, um, deep third degree burns like leather, like, like wearing a corset to bed, um, you've got to think about peak airway pressures coming from that intrinsic injury and you've got to proceed to release that. Um, and that releases an escharotomy. And so that's something that patients will sometimes manifest even as early as four to six hours from their injury. Um, later on in the resuscitation phase, if you've already made it through the first eight to 16 hours and you've started coming down on their resuscitation volumes based on your urine output, um, and then suddenly their urine output drops off, you're going back up again on your fluids, you're having increased peak airway pressures and abdominal distension, that's when you have to worry about compartment syndrome. Perfect. Um, Is there any consensus on crystalloid versus colloid for resuscitating these patients after the initial resuscitation? Well, so after the initial resuscitation is itself, you know, an extended period of time. So we're talking about 24 hours of, of a normal burn resuscitation, sometimes out beyond 24 to 48 hours. And so crystalloid is a large portion of that resuscitation, but you know, even in the early, the original burn resuscitation formulas, there was a role of colloid. 
And so that colloid was either albumin or plasma. And over the decades, there's been sort of shifting opinions on when and how much colloid should be used, but you'll still find about 50% of the burn community will use colloid regularly in their uh, early resuscitation. And by that, I mean, you know, at the, about the eight hour mark. So okay. we're starting at the eight hour mark. And uh, basically albumin is what we're talking about, like colloid wise? Well, so so albumin or FFP. Okay. I think there's people who believe strongly about both. Okay, sounds good. Um, and is there any in the speaking of the continuing management of these patients? Are there any biomarkers or serial labs that we're going to be following after the initial 24-hour resuscitation? Uh, so I think acidosis markers, uh, base deficit lactate, have both shown to be uh, helpful in trending a successful resuscitation in these patients um, as they are with trauma patients and other of our critical Ill, critically ill patients in the ICU. Uh, I happen to prefer base deficit as a marker, uh, but there are plenty of people who use lactate. Uh, and beyond that, nothing has really emerged as the number one lab test that uh, everyone does consistently. Okay, and I'm going to be circling back to something we spoke about earlier. Is there any way we can assess we're adequately fluid resuscitating these patients? Should we be doing SVO2, echo, ultrasound, urinary output, leg raise, um, non-invasive techniques, A-line, anything? <laughs> so ultimately it comes back to that Foley catheter. Mm -hmm. uh, Urine output remains sort of the mainstay of the resuscitation of a critically ill burn patient. But that's not to say that we don't use other adjuncts. And, you know, I will tend to trend base deficits throughout the first 24 to 48 hours to make sure that my resuscitation trajectory is on track. And so that gives me some early warning if I need to adjust my fluids or think about earlier colloid initiation. Um, worry about other problems, compartment syndrome, um, maybe a component of other shock that the patient may be undergoing. So I think there's been a lot of interest in using other adjuncts to monitoring resuscitation, uh, SVO2s, uh, fluid responsiveness on a beat-to-beat -beat analysis as we do in some of our sepsis patients, uh, but nothing that has definitively become the mainstay of our resuscitation monitoring. Sounds good. And now that we're talking about resuscitation, uh, from an intensivist standpoint, do you favor normal saline, LR, plasma light, anything of like that well, nature? No, that's a great question. Uh, I think pretty much wherever you are, the isotonic solution that you have available is the best choice. Uh, LR is the fluid that's recommended by the uh, American Burn Association, but as long as it's something isotonic, uh, we're in a good, it's a good place to start. And just discussing an AKI with another doctor, I totally try to stay away from the normal saline just from the afferent chloride burden that you can get in subsequent AKI, which these guys are kind of hyper-perfused and more prone to being at risk for. Yeah, I think it's 
important to keep in mind that if the resuscitation goes well, you know, the incidence of acute kidney injury is not dramatically increased just because they've had a thermal injury. Um, certainly, you know, you can run into uh, hypochloremic metabolic acidosis type situations with large volumes of saline resuscitation, but um, not something that can't be managed by a good intensivist. Exactly. Well said. And how about caloric requirements? Are you thinking time zero after the 24 hours? And if so, how much? So that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked me that because I think that we have to pay attention to nutrition from the instant these patients hit the door. Uh, burn patients can expend up to 160 to 200% of normal caloric requirements of other patients in the hospital. And so they really need to be fed as often and as continuously as possible. Uh, we will start feeding from about the moment they hit the ICU if they'll tolerate it and continue with continuous tube feeds uh, pretty much until they leave the ICU. So, Yes, I totally agree and I'm sure most of the critical care uh, audience listening agrees as well. Uh, and disposition-wise, do you know, can you tell us a little bit more about when and when when and where to downgrade these patients to, and some common pitfalls that prevent the timely and appropriate disposition? Sure, I, it's an interesting question in this era of resource utilization. I think that, uh, you know, the, the obvious marker is liberation from the ventilator, you know, liberation from vasoactive support, um, liberation from continuous uh, dialysis, should that be necessary during the course of their treatment. Those are sort of standard markers for when patients no longer need the ICU. But in addition, it's important to think about, you know, where are they going next and the capacity of the next place to manage them. Certainly, a lot of the patients in the ICU will end up with large wound dressings, and the effort taken to do a dressing for these patients can be an hour, an hour and a half uh, from our nursing colleagues. So it's not something that can easily be transferred to a step-down unit where they're having to manage four or five patients at a time um, in addition to, you know, their other tasking on a step-down unit. So, you know, one of the things that we always do is we'll huddle with our nursing leadership and say, you know, is this patient cleared from a nursing perspective? Uh, you know, are, there, are the daily nursing tasks uh, amenable for the patient to come out of the intensive care unit? Which is, that's definitely something that needs to be taken into consideration and that I can see being missed a lot. Um, anything that we can do during their hospital stay that will decrease their mortality or morbidity while in their hospital? Sorry, that skipped. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there anything we can do as intensivists to decrease these patients' hospital mortality and morbidity? I think that everything we do as intensivists is ultimately focused at that. I think it's an important thing to remember that more and more of our patients are leaving the ICU and having you know long and very productive lives after their critical illness. I think in Burns specifically, we spend a lot of time uh, working with our rehab colleagues to make sure that these patients are as mobile as they can be. Um, again, from pretty much the time they hit the intensive care unit to the time they go out to the floor and can attend the rehab gym specifically. You know, our rehab therapists are 
not phased in the slightest by the idea of walking a patient on a ventilator. And so we tend to see our patients leave the ICU, you know, able to actively engage in the rehab process on the floor, which I know is not always the case with some of our non-burn intensive care patients. Which is a great thing to see now in this day and age, these people being walked while they're on, while they're intubated and on ventilators. If your facility is definitely capable of doing it, it is something you should be doing. However, if your resources are on the little bit of the lower side, it might be something you want to avoid so these patients don't have a <laughs> catastrophe happen while they're walking around your ICU unmonitored. Um, right. I, I certainly wouldn't advocate for that in a situation where people are uncomfortable, but there's lots of things you can do in the bed. Um, next to the bed, you just simply having the patient go from sitting in their own bed to sitting in a chair next to their bed um, does a lot of good for for their overall mental health and their physical health. Absolutely, and it's up to us to keep rounding, walking by, and asking why they're not in that bed and why they're not walking. Because I feel like, to Absolutely. me, in my ICU, that's what ends up happening, is I ask the question and then they get walking. Um, the Any indications for a bronchoscopy? bronchoscopy that you can think of off the top of your head with these patients? So the initial assessment of the patient for inhalation injury is, is it's helpful to have a bronchoscopic assessment um, at that time. Um, sometimes the decision to start inhaled uh, adjuncts for a bad grade three, grade four inhalation injury um, is aided by the bronchoscopic evaluation. Like what type but, of adjuncts, Doc? So there's a literature on inhaled heparin uh, as an adjunct with inhaled mucomist, bicarb, and um, albuterol. We'll use that combination for the first 48 hours and then reassess our patients to see um, what their mucosal wall looks like and whether they're still sloughing a fair amount, whether they still retain particles, and um, then decide to go for another 48 hours or not. Interesting. That's very interesting. And considering burn shock, what exactly is it and what type of shock is it? Any risk factors, physiological sequelae? Do you have any target blood pressures or choice suppressor? I don't know what burn shock is, so, actually. See, I, I, failed. Yeah. I, I failed Jim. Jim doesn't know <laughs> what burn shock is. So, Jim, let me ask you, what kind of shock uh, does it does it sound like to you? Well, if, if there is a patient who is hypotensive and all of his, you know, subcutaneous wet tissue or exposed, he's losing a ton of fluids, it sounds more like a, uh, well, he's all inflammatory and leaky. It sounds honestly like a uh, distributive shock to me. But Sure, and, and I think that's, a, that's an important thing to keep in mind, that, that burns is one of the subcategories of this vasodilatory distributive shock that... Um, we see, you know, much along the same line as a really bad pancreatitis or, of course, sepsis, which everyone is familiar with. Um, but there is also a component of hypovolemic shock because, mm -hmm. again, as their third spacing, uh, their extracellular fluid, that's going to sink the amount, decrease the amount of volume in the pipes. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a cardiac suppressant component. So there is, in the early phase of burn shock, um, decreased cardiac output, interestingly enough, um, that then recovers by about 12 to 16 hours, but um, is it sort of adds to the challenge of the early resuscitation. 
Okay. Okay. And let's not... One thing I like about these podcasts is I like for this to be information that can be accessed by anybody, anywhere, in any facility. So to turn our head towards the small community hospital in the middle of nowhere or with limited resources, is there any time-critical actions that our small community doc should be doing when he gets one of these patients should, that should obviously be in your facility that he or she can do to help this patient out in the future? I think that's a great question, and I think... You know, the definition of a resource-limited hospital is changing every day. So uh, what I would encourage everybody to do is make sure they know who their local regional referral center is for burn injury uh, and make sure that they, you know, have an ongoing relationship with that, with that institution um, so that when they do call to transfer a patient, it's not a huge surprise and they're not fumbling to figure out how to get in touch. So other than early referral to the regional burn center, I think that you know the initiation of fluids is really the most time critical piece. And then keeping in mind that even in a resource strapped uh, environment, you know if you have a Foley catheter and you have fluids, you can titrate uh, the volume that the patient is getting based on their urine output. So if you can do those things and uh, prevent sort of a delayed response, as it were, to, sh to a delayed response to their resuscitation needs, then that's going to be the best ultimate thing for the patient. I agree totally. And is there any other patient population that you feel that could receive, uh, I would say, um, more optimal care than just your typical burn patient that could come into your facility? Yeah, I think it's one of those interesting parts of my job, you know, it's very obvious when somebody has a 50% deep second and third degree burn, frankly, even, you know, 50 to 75% first degree burns can sometimes be uh, difficult to manage. But, you know, you, it's easy when they're large, um, it becomes sort of more difficult to, to figure out why we have to send some smaller burns, uh, not delete, it becomes It's interesting to think about how burn centers impact the care of patients with smaller burns because oftentimes it becomes a transportation issue or a burden to the patient to make that that travel arrangement and to really get themselves to their regional referral center. Um, but there are good reasons to do so and I would argue that the diabetic burn population is a great example of that. Um, the diabetic patients are at significantly elevated risk of lower extremity amputation after sustaining burn injury. And I think that the resources and the expertise of a burn center uh, allows for the best possible chance of limb salvage in that patient population. So do your diabetic patients a favor. If you have a diabetic burn patient, just make a phone call, right? That's it. Yeah. Just a Absolutely. phone call. All right. Um, Jim, is there any questions you think uh, on a resident level that's burning in your minds? Yes, I, ha I have I have two resident level questions for you, Dr. Johnson. <laughs> sure. Uh, so one thing I, I don't think we touched upon was um, ventilation strategies in these patients because I can, I can see that you would maybe kind of want to approach it like ARDS to preserve any, you know, barotrauma, assuming that they have friable, you know, respiratory mucosa. But then 
But I also kind of think that, well, if you're concerned about compartment syndrome, you're not going to see these, you know, pressure peaks unless you're giving them higher volumes that would cause. So what I had, if that makes sense, like how do you kind of reconcile that or what is your favorite strategy? No, that's a great, a great question. I think there's a lot of nuance in the management of ventilation and oxygenation in a critically ill burn patient. Certainly, you're right, you know, in patients who are at risk for uh, chest compartment syndrome, as it were, you know, it's going to be sometimes the peak airway pressure alarms will be going off, but sometimes, depending on the mode you're ventilating the patient in, it will simply be smaller and smaller tidal volume return to the ventilator that has to be your clue that something's going on ah. that requires an intervention. Oh, if they're on pressure control or something like that. If they're on pressure control, right. absolutely. Um, so, you know, certainly burn patients are at risk of developing ARDS, large burn patients. Um, and I, by that I mean patients with an extended, patients with a large TBSA. Mm-hmm. We've found, in, well, no, I don't even say that. I think, so the important part of managing burn patients on the ventilator is, again, to use the safety parameters that we've all been taught in critical care, you know, plateau pressure in the low 30s and uh, enough PEEP to try and prevent atelectra trauma. Um, it's worth thinking about the fact that the pressures that we get at the ventilator may not necessarily reflect all of the pressure uh, that is being uh, sort of distributed around the chest. Certainly, if you have substantial chest wall edema or increased extra uh, thoracic weight mm-hmm. for whatever reason, some of the pressures we see, I think, artificially underestimate the amount of support our patients require. Hmm. And so certainly I've seen patients who've come in um, on lowish PEEP volume, PEEP um, levels, Mm -hmm. uh, PEEPs of the sort of five to eight range, and who really I can't get oxygenating unless they're uh, increased somewhere, frankly, sometimes even double the PEEP that they show up on. Mm -hmm. So you know, while the, the while our initial markers, again, sort of safety parameters on the ventilator are parameters, mm-hmm. I would suggest that the vent settings really need to be individualized to the patient. You know, okay. ARDS, yeah. lung protective strategy is a good place to start, but you really have to look at your patient and and evaluate whether they need more PEEP, more volume, um, you know, changes in their inhalation, exhalation, timing to account for all of the potential problems that they're going to undergo. Hmm. Excellent. Okay. Uh, can I see the pen for a sec? Mm-hmm. So I, I have one more kind of kind of trivial question. There's maybe the, no, maybe, the well, trivial no, no, question. You, you haven't heard it yet, doctor. So <laughs> give me one second, okay? So uh, how would, so when we talked about, well, this isn't the trivial part, but where, where are S- like emergent compartment syndrome procedures done? Like, do you, are these people have to go to the OR? Can you do them bedside? Or, you know, are they that emergent that you have to do them bedside? Because I've never seen one. I, I think Jim wants to do a fasciotomy in my ED. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you can, you, I, I have to say, you can get in line be, behind all the ER residents at yeah, my institution if you want to do something. <laughs> uh, nope, nope, so, I, I got one. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> no, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, they're all going to be very jealous. Yeah, I'll bet. So, 
You know, I would suggest to you that, as with any urgent and emergent procedure, it's um, really a balance of the risk and benefit from where you're doing the procedure uh, mm-hmm. and transportation, right? Every time we take somebody on a road trip, they are at increased risk for something going wrong on that road trip, uh, especially in the critically ill patient. So mm-hmm. you have to balance those risks with the benefit of being in a controlled and arguably more sterile environment with better lighting and more equipment like the operating room. Uh, you know, I will pretty much do most emergent procedures at the bedside in my burn ICU, but I have the ability to grab supplies from the operating room and I do the best I can to set the room up cleanly um, with the equipment necessary. Excellent. But if they need if they need a compartment release or they need a emergent airway, they need a chest tube, like it needs to be done without the road trip. Yeah, that, that's fair. Uh, I guess the, the follow-up is, what is, so what is your threshold to perform an, an es- escarotomy? Because it, it, to me, it seems just like a very violent, like last-ditch kind of procedure that you want to avoid. But then I think, well, it's not like you're going intrathoracic. So is it something that should be kind of like uh, easy to consult surgery for, or should we, you know? It. That's a really interesting question. Um, I've never had to think about the idea of escarotomies as being particularly violent, though. No, so, I guess so great. I surgeon, guess, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's interesting. As a surgeon, you know, I tend to have a different view of many of the procedures I do on a daily basis. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> it's certainly not something that should be done. Um, lightly and certainly in consultation with a surgeon who is experienced with doing them. Um, you know, a lot of times with appropriate limb elevation and, you know, close attention to fluid management, even circumferential uh, burns don't necessarily need to undergo escarotomy in order to maintain perfusion to the limb. But, you know, if the corollary to that is if you've gotten to the point where you don't have pulses in a limb, that's too late. Okay. So, you know, that's, it's going to be a judgment call and you and the consultant who's going to be doing the escarotomies um, need to have, you know, a legitimate discussion about what do you think is going to happen to the extremity over the next four to six hours Hmm. um, before undergoing it. I mean, certainly there are some patients who I know they're going to have an enormous resuscitation, and so I will go ahead and do the escarotomies early so that I don't increase ischemia time for cellular groups that don't need it. Um, cool. Which I wanted to ask, any because we've never done them, we don't typically do them, any complications that happen besides infection and blood loss and stuff like that during the escarotomy that's just not heard of it's so or funny that... that everyone's like oh you know infection bleeding like normal complications <laughs> right um, i mean but like you know like things that we don't think of normally that you encounter you know most escarotomies again you're going through skin and subcutaneous tissue this is you know this is a different procedure from a fasciotomy where you're going through 
the fascia outside a muscle group um, in an area that may contain large nerves um, and blood vessels. Um, so, you know, that's we're at a different level from the potential harm of a, of a fasciotomy. That's but, true. you know, you're still, you don't want to, you, you don't want to be doing these on like extremities that have, well, I don't want to say that. Um, I understand. I mean, it's a serious procedure. It's made not as complicated potentially as a fasciotomy where you're going through right. the whole, yeah. That makes sense. Right. Okay. Cool. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to add uh, as we're coming down to the end of the podcast that we can just edit in if you want to give fun facts or something? <laughs> uh, fun fact. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think it's important when you are managing burn patients to not over or undersell the potential impact of the injury to the patient's family. You know, there are mortality estimates that can tell you, you know, who in a population is going to survive or not survive from uh, a large burn injury based on age. And, you know, sometimes patients surprise us. I've seen very, very healthy 80-year-olds and not-so-healthy 40-year-olds, and the 80-year-olds are coming back to me in my outdoor adaptive sports survivor program um, a year later saying, hey, thanks, um, and the 40-year-olds are not. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's important not to oversell that. But at the same time, you know, this is a new normal. Like, these patients are not going to have the same lives that they had beforehand and that's not to say that there's any value associated with that but it's important for them to recognize that this is life is going to be different Mm -hmm. which 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 reminds me is there a point in the whole hospital stay or the resuscitation that you feel like everything you could possibly have done for this patient has been maximized and you can no longer do anything else and i think that's that point comes to all of us with all of our patients at some point in somebody's resuscitation we've hit the end of everything we can offer um you know it's going to be different for different patients certainly you know there are some patients that will go all the way to offer ecmo for um with pretty reasonable survival expectations and then other patients who you know after the first eight hours when they're not responding appropriately to their initial resuscitation, um, we'll turn to the family and say, you know, look, we've had a discussion with you about your loved one's, you know, wishes and goals for their life. I don't think that continuing to do what we're doing is going to allow him or her to get to that, to those goals. So uh, we really need to think about shifting to making them comfortable. Well, with that, I would like to thank you and uh, our audience thank yous for bringing us some information that we normally wouldn't come across on our daily reading and uh, dealing with these patients on a daily basis. Uh, Again, Dr. Johnson, thank you again for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Richard Iurio, M.D. Dr. Richard Iurio is co-director of Lincoln Medical Center's Emergency Department, Critical Care Division in the South Bronx. Dr. Iurio is a native Long Islander who completed most of his training in the New York area.
Dr. Ayurio is an educator for residents, nurses, fellows, mid-level practitioners, and medical students. His passion is to make critical care medicine more accessible to anyone taking care of critically ill patients. His academic interests are trauma, resuscitation, sepsis, and patient safety. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.